what he called it was an exorcism. I relived all of this to play her. Lady Gaga ending that report. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to the Week on 3 with me, Noreen Mir. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that our annual charity campaign, Operation Santa Claus, is well underway. We're really delighted to partner up with the South China Morning Post once again to support 18 worthy causes this year. We have a brand new website, so do support us and visit HKOSC for more details. Now on with this week's program, from animals to World Toilet Day and looking at the best public toilets in Hong Kong. But first, I'd like to start with art and operation Santa Claus. On Thursday's 123 show, Art Singer Round correspondent Andrew Dambina spoke to Inid Choi, arts editor at the South China Morning Post, about the Operation Santa Claus 2021 NFT art fundraiser. Andrew starts by asking how they chose the five local artists participating in the exhibition. The artists who are participating in the exhibition in this project, they have a really diverse range of backgrounds. So I invited them to join this project because some of them I knew were already looking into this technology. So for example, Natalie Wong, aka Paper Sneaker, she is best known, she's probably better known for the physical objects that she makes. So, I mean, her uh, pseudonym, Paper Sneaker, has to do with a really successful project she made a few years ago. Literally, making sneakers with paper. And, and also she has done a lot of works with neon lights. Um, but um, she was looking into NFTs after somebody who bought one of her paintings turned it into an NFT to sell without her knowledge. That's a bit cheeky, isn't it? <laughs> it was really. And, um, and so she thought, hang on a minute. I should look into this myself. <laughs> yeah. And then Ophelia Jacarini, who's a ballet dancer, um, she makes artworks that express the movement of dance. Mm. She tries to capture what's ephemeral, bodily movements, but without showing the body itself. And so her work is quite abstract. Mm. And she has always been very interested in using technology to help her kind of uh, materialize that abstract vision. So she looked into virtual sculptures. And in order to sell virtual sculptures, mm. she thought NFTs mm-hmm. would come in handy. So she's made a virtual sculpture. It's um, in this brilliant blue. It rotates. And also, she's taken it one step further. She's created a physical object, a one and only physical object which is a hologram, a mm. hologram housed inside a very specialist frame. So it's like a picture frame. You can hold it in your hand, and in it is a rotating hologram. Is there much depth? I mean, how many centimeters deep is that artwork? The frame itself is no bigger than an, an, an ordinary picture frame. So the NFT is attached to the digital virtual sculpture. But when you buy the NFT, you also get this physical object. Right. Oh, okay. Got it. Well, we're actually looking at this as we interview on, 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 a, on a screen at the moment, and the, uh, the rotating sculpture does dispel the myth that you wouldn't be able to show 
a sculpture in a couple of centimeters deep frame. Yes, I couldn't believe my eyes when I first saw it because it looks so solid. Well, there are some bids already on some of these artworks, and if people want to go to osc.scmp.com, you can find all of the artworks on there. And looking at the piece that we were just talking about by the artist Ophelia Giacarini, there are bids already going on. Bids will be closing later than the exhibition is uh, is is on itself. Yeah, how long is this going on for you? Of the eight works. Two are up for auctions, i.e., open to bids. The others are multiple editions that are sold at a fixed price. And so, even before our marketing push,、uh, within the first week of、um, these works being minted, being launched, we've already sold three artworks、mm. from the pieces that have multiple editions,、right. and have also received bids for some of the pieces up for auction. And、um, I should also clarify that the works are sold in two different kinds of currencies. So, in the NFT art market. Ethereum is by far the most popular cryptocurrency used to buy and sell these. It has one major advantage: the liquidity of this market is enormous. Right. And、um, but the disadvantage is that it uses a technology that's not very environmentally friendly. It uses a lot of electricity, a lot of power. So some of the artists have opted for a less Well-known but greener、mm. uh, cryptocurrency called Polygon.、Um, it is one of many, many options out there, and it's really encouraging to see that some of them have been sold, even though they are not being transacted using a very mainstream currency. Also, there's been an attempt by you and the other organisers to request that artworks are at a reasonable or affordable price range, right? Yes, so Frog King Guamanho is, of course, the most experienced, best known of our five artists. So his video, Frog Dimension, is probably the most highly valued of the lot. Excuse us while we while we watch the the Frog King's video while you're while you're speaking. A lot of sound effects there. The minimum bid for Frog King's Frog Dimension Number One, his first ever NFT, is 0.9 Ethereum, which comes to just under 4,000 US dollars. This is the work that has the highest value among the five. The other works, for example, a lovely animation by Evie Chan, aka Moon Casket, of These monster creatures having <laughs> dim sum in Linhanglao.、Um, that's priced at half an Ethereum or half half a, a, a polygon, rather.、Um, some editions of it have been sold already.、Um, Rainbow Jae,、um, a very accomplished painter, her first NFT of a Hong Kong night scene is also priced at a very accessible level, and、um, and so. You have、um, a, a range of prices, but all relatively accessible. So, 
If people are tempted to buy an NFT, particularly from this collection, how would they keep them? How would they display them? Obviously, the Ophelia Jacarini one comes in its own special display, which would be easy to display. But if someone bought, um, for example, the uh, the silent animation of the monsters having uh, dim sum at Lin Hung Restaurant, how would they enjoy that? Would they view it on their computer or other devices? Or is there any way to put it against a wall in a traditional kind of display your art kind of way. Well, Rainbow, Rainbow Zare, who has made this lovely painting, digital painting of a Hong Kong night scene, she is giving whoever buys the NFT a signed print, ah. high resolution signed print. So that's one approach. But with Eevee or Moon Caskets, um, uh, it is digital only, a digital animation. The dim sum one. That's the dim sum one. I have spoken to collectors who are fairly new to this. Mm. And at the beginning, they would just look at their NFTs on their phones. But then I know somebody who's just bought a digital frame. It's like a television screen, basically, just to house her NFT collection. Um, and just hang it on the wall. <laughs> wow. Did she begin that when she had just one or was it when she realized she was going to get into this and have a few and just save it for that? Exactly, yeah. And that was Ina Choi talking on Thursday's 123 show. Let's look back on World Toilet Day, which was yesterday. And on Thursday's Back Chat, Hosts Jim Gould and Andrew Work talked to Dr. Henry Hung Chi Kun, who's the past president and founding member of the Hong Kong Toilet Association, about this year's results for the Best Public Toilet Awards 2021. This year we have about 400 public toilets uh, we have done in Hong Kong. And the best one is the one in, in, the, in the Western um, uh, District, a, 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 a Smithfield toilet. And what we're doing this is based on our strategy. It's about how to, um, uh, whether the toilet is a, a, a comfortable one, it is uh, accessible and um, uh, hygiene and, and also um, safe. So we use this four uh, area to justify whether the toilet is, is good or bad. And this one, uh, the one we, we give them the gold award, which comply with all our requirements. So this is what we have done. And uh, some of the worst toilet that we have uh, this year, which is uh, very disappointed, uh, this toilet is in the Quintong uh, Waterfront um, Park, where the toilet has been just uh, renovated or, or built about half, uh, half a year ago. And at that time, that was very good. And unfortunately, after uh, less than a year, and the condition of the toilet is, is, is terrible, what we, what we, what we say. Come on, so come this on. is something we, we really um, disappointed. So that will be a, a lack of care and maintenance then in that case? Oh, yes. Mm. It's, it's all about um, the management of the public toilets. As the government, uh, they have several departments to manage these uh, public toilets. Um, so uh, some of them even outsource to other contractors to do it. So they are not in a unified management system. Um, so that is making a lot of chaotic in the management of the public toilet. Because the government is spending a lot of money and it has a, a, a large-scale ongoing programme to renovate and upgrade public toilets, doesn't it? But uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, the, the, how much of a difference has that made? 
Well, uh, I think the, the, the difference is, is that when a toilet is newly renovated and uh, not a, 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 a few months, then they become back into very worse condition again. So, so this is all about how they manage and uh, they should have a, a unified system to manage all the public toilets in Hong Kong. Dr. Hong, I got some I got some tough questions for you because I'm looking at your list. Gold, Smithfield Municipal Services Building, Silver, Yen Chow Public Street. But I'm looking at a report from 2019 and I see your worst male toilets in Hong Kong and Smithfield Municipal Services Building is on the list. And for worst male and female, Yen Chow is on the list. How have yeah. these two floated to the top? Well, I, I think that is what our, our, our functionality of our survey when we uh, uh, post that, that that is the worst toilet, and then the, the management may may uh, um, put more effort to improve the the condition of the toilet, so they make it uh, better. And of course, the contractor, I, I think, they change every year. So maybe the uh, the contractor of this year is different from the last year. So I think the, this is all about management. Uh, uh, although there's a much a big difference from the worst to the best. So this is, um, is a, a really something that the government have to look into. Yeah, so, I mean, you, you guys have some power then. I mean, if you put somebody on a blacklist, I mean, that is it, there's a high likelihood maybe the contractor is going to get lose, lose the job and, uh, you know, and that, that's going to get some attention. Yeah, that is exactly what, what we have done in the past number of years. Mm-hmm. When, whenever we go down there and see the toilet is very uh, um, uh, in a bad condition and then they just simply close it and then run away it, and then hopefully it can maintain a longer a period of time. But unfortunately, sometimes it's not. All right. And, and uh, I mean, that, that's obviously there's, there's opprobrium on the bad side. Nobody, nobody wants to get in your crosshairs, it looks like. Uh, how about on the good side? Do you, do you now have uh, organizations coming and lobbying you, like, like uh, the shopping malls wanting to say, hey, guys, come and look at our toilets. They're the best and try to sell you on how good their, their toilets are? Yeah. In, in, in the private sector, I think it's much better. They, they are continuously improving their, their public toilet and maybe number one for, for the uh, uh, image of the, the, the mall and also for better management of their organization like that. But for the government side, I think this is quite, they, they really need a lot of improvement. And also the management is, is from different departments, quite fragmented. Uh, from some of them from the food and health and environmental department and some by the cultural uh, center uh, department. So it is quite uh, confusing, actually, sometimes. Yeah. It, it's been uh, pointed out for a number of years um, that there aren't enough uh, women's toilets um, in, uh, and, and there, there should be the, the proportion of women's toilets to men's uh, should be a lot greater to meet uh, needs, um, demand and so on. Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, that is a very good, uh, good question. Actually, this question has been put forward in the House of Commons in in UK back to 15 years ago. That means the ratio of the male and female, which is far uh, 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 insufficient. Uh, now the regulation is one to two. That means one uh, toilet in the male and then two toilet in the female. But it's still not enough because uh, in the male toilet we have urinals. But for the ladies, they don't have. So the numbers should be either increased from one to three, or we also include the number of your lineal to a toilet. Supposing in a male toilet, there are three cubicles, 
and then three urinal, that means totally six number. So in the female toilet should be double that that uh, number of uh, 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 urine, uh, toilet in the female toilet. And has anything actually happened in the UK since this was raised as an issue 15 years ago? Well, well unfortunately, no, because in, in UK, even, even a bit uh, worse because of the public toilet, the, the, uh, there is a, a big problem of criminal cases happening in the, in, in the public toilet. So a lot of the public toilet in the UK, they just simply close it down. So yeah. it's a very, very, very un, un, unfortunate case. Yeah, or others, uh, just thinking of London, a lot of public toilets, uh, you, you have to pay to use them. Um, that's that's never the situation here in Hong Kong, is it? Uh, not really. Mm. Only one uh, paid toilet, which is in the, in the Wong Tai Shin Temple. Oh. Um, uh, I, I'm not sure whether that is uh, so effective or not. But generally speaking, the, the public toilet in Hong Kong we really need to put in a more effort to improve the, the situation. And that was Henry Hung on Thursday's Back Chat, talking about the results for the Best Public Toilet Awards for this year. This week on The Common Room, Alison Howe caught up with Thai Italian sensation Sylvie. She's a singer and actress and also a real advocate for body positivity. I feel like um, it's a long journey to have, but um, it's, it's, a, it's a journey that I have to have to have come this far and to love myself the way I am today. I love it. Now, you did mention that even though you're very young, you're 25, aren't you? Yeah, I'm 25. And you've been doing this for a decade, which is crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, yeah, you've gone through like quite a lot of prominent TV shows. I mean, you've done The Voice, you've done The Masked Singer. Yeah. How did these shows impact your career? Um, I think um, each each TV show is like different because um, I was different too. Like when I was at The Voice, I was at the age that I was finding my true self like I was um, I, I break the contract with the old label and I joined into the voice because I have this thing in my head going on that I want to be an artist in my own way like I want to be me so mm. that's why I joined the voice and also the mass singer was when I am already myself so each stage is a different uh, preference of me so, yeah, you, you, you may find a lot of difference in every stage I go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, even the sound of your music is different. Yeah. So, XL, I'm guessing, is introduced us to a new era of Sylvie. Yeah, it's like a new, a new Sylvie, yeah. Right. Do we expect more hip-hop, more dancing? What's this direction going to be? Um... I'm not quite sure what to label myself. <laughs> I don't really know what to label me, but um, the next song will be like a quite, it is going to be a fun song, of course, like a, a, a quick tempo, um, not not a slow song yet, because I'm still um, having fun and really hyped from what I can make um, other people feel of my music. So I think um, after this, will still be a uh, up-tempo, upbeat song. And you nice. will... Nice. I think you will find a lot of more um, more positive vibe and like more more encouraging you to come out of your comfort zone kind of thing. Yes. Putting it on my playlist right away before it's released. 
and that was Alison Howe's Common Room. You can catch it weekdays from 9 to 10 p.m. On Tuesday's Morning Brew, Phil Whelan spoke to Merrin Pierce along with Anna Goldman from the University of Hong Kong. She's a specialist in natural history and they started by asking about the role and significance of a natural history museum. The purpose of a natural history museum is to kind of snapshot time and create records in like a library for uh, researchers in the future. So we don't know what sort of changes are happening right now, uh, let's say with uh, local insect populations, but if we can collect snapshots over time, specimens over time, mm. then we can look back and kind of compare these these changes over time. So you can look at populations as to where things were or have been. You could look at pollution levels on feathers. You can... There's there's any number of things and questions that we haven't even thought to ask. People hundreds of years from now can ask and look at these specimens and compare. So what's the closest thing for a natural history museum that we've got in Hong Kong? Well, we have a biodiversity museum here at the University of Hong Kong. Um, it's still, it's quite small and up and coming. Um, and then we also have a museum of, is it the Museum of History, Museum of Science? Where you can kind of go through some natural history uh, progressions it kind of jams geology and uh, you know animals that used to be in Hong Kong and culture so a natural history museum is kind of that umbrella for the natural environment the human world mm. and those kind of things so you can see dinosaurs there that kind of stuff see hey, when we were kids we go around and look at natural history museum and go wow there's a bear there's a tiger but for you guys it's more of a barometer it's a, a way to a way to gauge things through. It's interesting you talk about pollution on the feathers and fur as well. That's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's and and this is something that was also just recently discovered in the past ten years that we can look at these things from these specimens that they collected in the in the twenties and thirties. Yeah, we can now look and find residue. We can also take DNA samples from the the skins that we preserve, measure bones to see um, how urbanization is changing foxes mm -hmm. in London over time, for, for example. There's there's so many interesting things that we can learn from just keeping dead things. Well, let me ask you a question here. I mean, this is very newsworthy. Let's talk about urbanization of wild boar. We've had, uh, we've had these guys oh, in the news wow. quite a lot here. I mean, without getting into what's happening here, just the habits of these creatures, has it, has it piqued yeah. your attention at all? Oh, incredibly. Um, I, from working out in uh, the mountains in Hong Kong, I see a lot of impact from boar. Yeah. And considering they don't have any natural predators, that's kind of an ecological concern. Yeah. And there are other places that use um, culling as a means to control their population. Whether or not that's the right uh, move forward for Hong Kong is still, still yet to be seen. It's, it's a really complicated issue. And as an ecologist, it definitely has me concerned with wildlife in Hong Kong and how we're dealing with the encroachment of, of wildlife into our urban centers. Marin, before you jump in, I mean, you'll, you'll understand this totally. It's not just wild boar. I'm fascinated why wildlife in general is kind of making its way towards where people live in Hong Kong. Um, and I don't think it has for a long, long time, has it, Marin? You're meaning that we're starting to see well, different there's a species. bit of the spread, but there's yeah. just different species coming back in and that. I think what we're seeing is that there's uh, less of the 
spray and kill kind of everything in some parts around our country parks. I'm not saying that in our our leisure parks, you might say there's a lot of that being um, misting for the mosquitoes, which kills everything else. I'm talking about why these guys come into our domain in the first place, there must be a reason. And well, yeah, that's that's what. Well, we, there's what food I'm... opportunities, and they haven't got any predators. So, what are they worried about? Nothing really. Yeah. You know, humans run away from them. Most of the feral dogs are being taken away these days, and we still don't have any of so our tigers really or whatever we else for these guys. It is. They are the guys that can just go. Hey, I'll take this. But with that, Anna, you were saying the the impacts the boar, and I know for your PhD thesis, you were saying that you looked at pangolins. So. I don't understand too much about pangolins. Um, I actually didn't really know that Hong Kong had them until I came here. But what, where's the conflict or interface between pangolins and boars that I might be thinking? Is it a food issue out in the bush or they eat different things? Um, they definitely eat different things. Um, boar are kind of omnivores. They're opportunists. They kind of get into whatever they can. And pangolins very specifically only eat ants and termites. They actually have no teeth and they have a tiny little mouth How's and they those? have a rapid fire tongue. <laughs> yeah. So um, there's not really a conflict between boar and pangolins per se. However, boars are incredible ecosystem engineers. They uh, <laughs> really, they really get into an environment and, and rip things up. So, so you've uh, got a picture up there of you um, uh, looking at trees. It looks like you're look, maybe looking for ants, hearing what you've just said. Um, but you've got some photos there where you're walking through long grass and looking at trees. So as Phil cycles through those, what are, what are you doing on this project? Um, so in that particular instance, what we do is we basically, uh, we just walk around and we look for different signs of different types of wildlife pangolins particularly but we're also documenting anything else that we see so we we pick up scat or poop from animals that we see we see a poop that looks weird that we don't recognize we definitely that's bring great it back that's exactly what i was just about to ask you i mean that's a good that's really a sign isn't it it's a sign yeah um a lot of people uh think it's quite funny but um poop is a way to really keep your finger on an environment you it's the only thing that they really leave behind that will last for a while yeah so we're we're really just trying to get out there and and witness experience and absorb hong kong natural scenery because not many people go off trail not many people are really absorbing all these tiny little details and that was anna goldman a specialist in natural history on tuesday's morning brew and now finally, let me leave you with some good old-fashioned music entertainment. Thursday's Afternoon Drive with Steve James. I hope you have a wonderful weekend. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next week, bye for now. Let's all take a moment. Radio 3. Radio 3. Thursday Afternoon Drive. You listening? I'm listening. <laughs> The factories may be roaring yeah. With the boom a lack zoom a lack But there isn't any roar when the clock strikes four oh. Everything stops for tea Here we go
Now I know just why Franz Schubert yes. didn't finish his unfinished symphony. La 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 la. He might have written more, but the clock's just four. Right. And everything's done for tea. Tea break this afternoon. At this day, 1978, Billy Joel went to number one on the album charts with his sixth studio album, 52nd Street. His first US number one album, also the first commercial album to be released on compact disc. He won a 1979 Grammy for Album of the Year with this. This track was on it. Hello. Hello. 